Hello and welcome to this week's podcast edition of Scripps 5 Must Know Things. This time for the business week ended 21st of May 2021. This is Ian Haydock. This week, GSK comes under pressure from investors. BMS focuses on a promising oncology target in the New Deal. Sanofi's COVID-19 vaccine faces challenges. China progresses its mRNA expertise for new coronavirus vaccines and Pfizer's Ibrantz faces new headwinds. GlaxoSmithKline's chief executive, Dame Emma Walmsley, is under increasing pressure from investors to prove her strategy for the business will pay off in the next few years. Walmsley took the helm in 2017 and the spin-off of its consumer health division, which was a joint venture with Pfizer, is central to her plan to streamline the business around the core pharma and vaccines franchises and build its pipeline. Many investors, however, are growing impatient with the pace of change. The consumer divestment was first proposed in 2018, but is not due to take effect until mid-2022. The stakes were raised last month when US activist investment group Elliott Management, which is well known for its aggressive tactics, was reported to have built a multi-billion pound stake in the company. It is thought that Elliott, run by billionaire Paul Singer, could call for an accelerated breakup of the business or even demand that the CEO be replaced. Since then, Walmsley and board chairman Jonathan Simmons have been on the defensive, seeking support from its biggest institutional investors against a potential shareholder revolt. Andrew McConaughey writes that discord among major investors was made plain last week when David Cumming, who's investment chief at shareholder Aviva, went public with criticism of Wormsley and GSK. He told the BBC Radio 4 that Elliott had been able to build its stake because of GSK's declining share price, which is down by 15% from when Wormsley took charge in 2017. It's left a gap they can exploit. Often the easiest catalyst to enforce change is to change the CEO, so the jury is still out on her future, said Cumming. Nevertheless, some major investors have privately expressed their support for Wormsley and her plan. Institutional investors control over 13% of shares in GSK, one of the highest levels in the pharma sector. UK media reports have said that BlackRock, the pharma company's biggest investor and the world's largest asset manager, has pledged its support to Wormsley. Other major shareholders, Dodge and Cox and Royal London, have also expressed opposition to Elliott's activism. Cancer drug companies are racing to develop the next big immuno-oncology drugs, and Bristol Myers Squibb is doubling down on Tidget as a target in a new deal with Agenus. The US company paid $200 million up front for exclusive global rights to the bispecific antibody Agen1777, a handsome price for a drug that's still in preclinical development. Under the deal announced on 18th May, Bristol also agreed to pay up to $1.36 billion in development, regulatory and commercial milestones. It will be solely responsible for the development and commercialization, but a genus will retain options to conduct clinical studies under the plan, conduct combination studies with certain genus-owned assets and an option to commercialize in the US. Bristol will focus development on high-priority tumour indications, including non-small cell lung cancer, and the genus is on track to file an IND application for ADN 1777 in the second quarter in the US. 
Genius President Jennifer Buell talked to Scripps Jessica Merrill about partnering with Bristol and the dual nature approach of ADN 1777. The bottom line is the value of this target, she said. Bristol had actually identified the value of this early on. By designing a bispecific antibody, a genus hopes to enhance the efficacy of the product to treat cancer by addressing multiple escape mechanisms. We understood that addressing the problem with just a digit monospecific may not bring the kind of durable anti-tumor responses that we are seeking, but to address a couple of pathways concurrently with a single molecule may do so, she said. In preclinical studies, the bispecific approach has shown significant potential in tumor models where anti-PD-1 or anti-tigit monospecific antibodies alone are ineffective, according to the companies. Sanofi has revealed solid but underwhelming top-line phase 2 results from its delayed COVID-19 vaccine, which showed the neutralizing antibody levels produced were comparable to that produced by a natural infection. French company has not yet published the full data either in a preprint publication or academic journal, but the results suggest an immune response well short of that seen in already authorised vaccines from Pfizer, BioNTech and Moderna. Andrew McConaughey writes it is still too early to say how effective the vaccine will prove in its phase 3 study, which will start recruiting shortly, but its global role will be marginal compared to what was originally envisaged. The vaccine uses a tried and tested protein subunit platform developed by Sanofi and twinned with an adjuvant from GSK. The phase 2 study included 722 participants and showed 95 to 100% seroconversion following a second injection in all age groups, that's 18 to 95 years old, and across all doses, with acceptable tolerability and with no safety concerns. That promising early safety profile could also mean it could provide an alternative to the viral vector-based vaccines from AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, which have produced cases of a very rare but potentially fatal bleeding disorder. However, the earliest Sanofi's vaccine could gain emergency use authorization in the US and EU would be Q4 of 2021, by which time global vaccine output of already authorized vaccines will have grown to billions of doses. Sanofi is already suggesting that the vaccine's main role could be not as a primary immunisation, but as a single-dose booster to maintain protection in people who have already received other two-dose vaccines. As announced by Mexico's Foreign Minister on 11th May, the China-developed mRNA vaccine for COVID-19 is now entering Phase 3 development in the country, which has been battling surging cases and new virus variants. Mexico has already ordered other Chinese vaccines, including Coronavac from Sinovac Biotech and a similar inactivated virus-based vaccine from state-owned Sinopharm, as well as an adenovirus-based vaccine from CanSino Biologics. The new study, however, will potentially usher in the first vaccine made in China to use the advanced mRNA platform, which has been so successful for several Western developers. The candidate has been developed by Abagen, a biotech startup founded in January 2019 in Suzhou's BioBay area, where a large biotech cluster has formed over the last decade. Brian Yang writes that company founder Bo Ying previously worked in Onkaido Therapeutics, a venture under Moderna, and before that at Dicerna as a senior scientist and group leader. Boston-based Moderna is one of two developers to have successfully developed and launched an mRNA COVID-19 vaccine, along with Pfizer and BioNTech, 
while US biotech Dicerna is a frontrunner in RNA drug development. Vaccine development is a very specialised area and we lack experience developing it in China, Ying told local drug development portal Tong Zheyi in an interview last October. Through collaboration, we can leverage the expertise of an established company to accelerate our learning and growth, and also to lower risks and realise synergy, he added. To this end, in May, the small firm announced it had chosen Malvex Biotechnology as a partner to jointly develop its mRNA vaccine, ARCOV. A Shenzhen-listed vaccine developer, Walvax appeared eager to jump aboard the fast-moving COVID-19 vaccine bandwagon. Aside from Abogen, the major Shanghai Fosun pharmaceutical company has also signed a licensing agreement to manufacture BioNTech's mRNA vaccines in China. Finally, Pfizer's Ibrantz has dominated the CDK4-6 inhibitor category since it launched in 2015 for hormone receptor positive, human epidermal growth factor receptor 2 negative, advanced or metastatic breast cancer, despite the entry of two competitors. But now it appears the drug's momentum may be reaching a plateau. Ibrant's sales were flat in the first quarter at $1.25 billion on a worldwide basis and declined 7% in the US to $794 million compared with Q1 2020, while sales of Lilly's Verzinio and Novartis's Kiskali both grew strongly, albeit off considerably smaller bases. First quarter sales of Vercinio grew 43% to $269 million and Kiskali grew 21% to $195 million year over year. Descomel reports that Pfizer attributed the slowdown in Ibrant's revenue to the COVID-19 pandemic, which has created a challenging commercial dynamic for many cancer drugs with fewer patients seeking out cancer screenings and receiving diagnoses. U.S. prescription volume for Ibrantz was relatively stable in the quarter, according to Pfizer, but more patients accessed the drug through Pfizer's patient assistance program due to hardships related to the pandemic. We continue to be the leading product in the CDK class by a wide range, with an 84% of total patient share in first-line use, Pfizer CEO Albert Baller said in a fourth May conference call. But Ibrantz has come under new commercial pressure after the drug failed to show a significant survival benefit in advanced HR plus HER2 negative breast cancer in a clinical trial, while Vercinio and Kiskali both did. Vercinio also succeeded in reducing the risk of breast cancer recurrence in women with HR plus HER2 negative high-risk early breast cancer in the Monarch E trial in the adjuvant setting. Ibrantz failed to do so in the Pallas and Penlope B trials. A study with Kiskali in the early adjuvant setting called Natalie is ongoing and expected to read out in 2022. The drugs are approved with different hormone regimens, however, and also have different safety profiles. Kiskali, for example, is the only one that carries a warning for risk of QT prolongation or abnormal heart rhythm in combination with tamoxifen. Pfizer is on its back foot a bit, Wolf Research Analyst Tim Anderson said in comments to Scrip. While the incumbent, it has also been the only one to not show a formal OS or overall survival benefit in first-line metastases. Novartis and Lilly both have it, he noted. That's all for this week. Many thanks for listening. Don't forget to sign in and set up to receive all these stories in full, which are also linked in the article accompanying this podcast and much more digital content. Bye for now.